Take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 5 uh, through 13 today. Very intense, very thick, very important passage of Scripture. And I hope you have your Bibles open and your hearts open as well as we look into God's Word. There's a story of a man who fell off a roof. He was up there working on his antenna and he started falling off the roof and he started rolling down the roof. And uh, he didn't totally fall off. He grabbed the gutter and was just hanging there. And there he was hanging there. He started hollering out, is there anybody who can help me? And a voice cried out, let go and I'll catch you. And he thought for a moment, he says, is there anybody else who can help me? Uh, I think that story illustrates pretty well where we're going right here today, where the dilemma that humanity has. Even the best of us know there's something is dreadfully wrong uh, with the human race. Not only are we not master of the world around us, and we see that all the time with what we call natural uh, disasters. We see uh, Maui burning up. We see floods in California. We see uh, hurricanes coming into the, to, uh, Florida. We see hell storms and wind storms here in Springfield. Uh, it, we see all these things happening that we cannot control. And uh, not only that, but uh, we're not only master, not master of those things, uh, we're not master of, uh, of the inhumanity of man-to-man in our world. We see everywhere we turn. Most human suffering, folks, is not caused by the things I just mentioned. Most human suffering is caused by the way people mistreat and hurt and harm one another. Now, we see that everywhere we turn, this inhumanity, this hatred for one another for no particular reason. Uh, sometimes some particular reasons, but often not any particular reason, except they're different than us. This oppression that we find everywhere, war that, that ravages the world from time to time, and it seems like it always does. And on top of that, we cannot be masters of ourselves either. Before we shake our head at these other things and other people, we look deep into our own hearts, and we know that there's deep-seated there things that we have awful time controlling. We know that even for us who want to be good, who desire to be good, who want to be followers of Christ, there are desires deep within us that want to go the opposite direction, and we battle those things on a regular basis. Scripture never denies that, and Scripture calls it the flesh that bo- what battles against the Spirit and will until the Lord comes back and take us, takes us to Himself. And so we don't need a self-help program. We don't, we don't need another three or four-step ideas or programs to get us uh, over the hump. What we need is a rescuer. We need someone to save us from from our dilemma, from our life. And yet most people, by nature, would rather hang on to the gutter of life than to uh, turn to the one who can rescue them. That's our very nature. And this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today shows that most people uh, have are ignoring and rejecting the very invitation that we're given, the very provisions given by Christ for us to be rescued from the, the, dilemmas, the dilemmas of this world, from the ravages of humanity and from the battles of our own hearts for now and for all eternity. How that plays out is the passage of Scripture that we're looking at together today. We're going to follow this. This is a very intense passage of Scripture. And um, as we read it a while ago, your head might have been swirling a little bit as you thought, just read through it and thought about it. And I'm going to do something today that all the, almost all, not all, but almost all church leaders say you shouldn't do. But we do this regularly. And that is we're going to teach some very heavy-duty theology. 
We're going to look at deep things into the Word of God today. We're told we can't do that. We can't do that because people aren't used to it anymore. They can't think over five minutes at a time. They can't follow a logical argument. Uh, we, we do that because we're told people aren't interested in theology. They're interested in self-help and steps to help them become successful and prosperous. They don't really care about the deeper things of the Word of God. Now, folks, if that's where you are, then I feel very sorry for you because you're missing out on the great treasures and riches of God and His Word and all He's provided for us. And so I want to encourage you today to open your Bibles, to look carefully into the Word of God with us as we unravel one of the most difficult passages I think I've ever tried to preach. And I've I've labored over this passage for weeks to try to make it understandable because of the intensity of the passage. And I hope and pray by God's grace uh, and by the power of His Spirit that we're able to do some of that today. And you'll walk away praising Him in, in renewed and wonderful ways. We're going to start off by looking at man's original design. What did God plan for humanity to be? And we see that uh, in, uh, implied in verse 5 when he says, But he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. We're still in a section of Hebrews that's talking about angels. Uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 both are just filled with discussions about angels. And... Um, He's not going to be done with that to almost the end of chapter 2. And so he mentions angels one more time. And he's, dealing, he's been dealing with the superiority of Christ over angels. As great as angels are, they're nothing compared to the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, he is far superior. And that's been the argument all the way through. And as he, as he talks about that, he is now starting to switch from angels, although he will continue to bring them up. He's starting to switch from angels to humanity, to mankind. And as he does so, he wants to say right off the bat, it was never God's intention, verse 5, for angels to rule this world. Angels abode as in heaven. They're spirit beings. Uh, they, they, uh, have a, they interact with the world. They interact with believers. God has a plan at times for them to do things here, but they were never designed to run this world or be in charge of it. That job is given to humanity. God created a physical universe in a physical world, and he made, created physical human beings to rule over this planet. Angels are not involved in that. Angels don't do that. Mankind does. And so he's turning his attention here to humanity. And after all, as he goes a little further, Jesus didn't become an angel and die for angels. Jesus had no redemption program for the angels that fell. Jesus... Uh, had a program, a plan to come and die for humans, for us. He became a man and went to the cross for us. There is no redemption plan for angels. He's come to redeem sinful human beings. Now the writer of the the epistle then is detailing the initial purpose for humans, uh, creation of humans, a physical world ruled by physical beings and not angels. They were not given that. So who was given the rulership over this planet? Human beings. I want you to go back. The only passage we'll turn away from today is Genesis chapter 1. And look at Genesis chapter 1 with me for a moment. These are very important verses, verses 26 and 27. Here's what some have called the the, uh, cultural mandate and some others call the kingdom mandate. Here is the original design for humanity. This is their original purpose. This is why they're placed on the planet. 
We see it in three, three quick verses in chapter 1 of Genesis. He says in chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's the original design and mission of humanity. We're made in the image of God. Angels are not made in the image of God. Only humans are. We're made in the image and the likeness of God and we're placed on the earth to to be the rulers, the, the vice rulers, the vice ambassadors for the Lord himself over the planet and we are, to, we are called to subdue and control and dominate everything on this planet. That was our original design, our original mission. Let's go back to our passage now with that in mind. Angels interact with the world, but their abode is heaven. We've been given this mission here on earth. So far, so good, right? So far, so good. But now our author seems to switch in verse 6, and he moves away from that original idea, that design. Angels are not in charge of this planet. People were given that charge. And then he moves to verses 6 to 8 and begins to talk about something a little different, headed a different direction as he wants to talk about humanity. Now, when he starts verse 6, he says, the one is testified somewhere. And I, I love that the way he does that in Hebrews. Several times he'll say, it's found somewhere. And he knows exactly where it is. Because he's quoting, if you have, don't have it in your Bibles, you can write it down. He's quoting from Psalm 8, verses 5 to 7, almost verbatim from the Septuagint, or the Greek uh, uh, translation of the Scriptures. And he's quoting these, these verses here. So he says they're, they're, they're found somewhere, he says. And here's what he has to say, verse 6. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you're concerned about him? And so as he starts this out, here's his question. Why did God bother with humanity? He had angels. He had the Trinity. He had all this perfection. Why did he bother to create a, a physical universe and place physical human beings in charge of it? Why does he care about people? Why does he care about you? Well, the modern day psychological jargon is he cares about us because we're so wonderful and valuable. Really? I, I think you got that backwards. We're not all that wonderful. We're not all that valuable. But he is, and he places value on us because of his love for us, not the other way around. And so why he says, why does, why does God even care about humanity in verse 6? Why did he bother? So let's follow the argument. Verse 7, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Uh, humans are a little lower than the angels, as, as a matter of Even in their perfection. Because he's talking here earlier about the design of humanity. Even in the Garden of Eden, before mankind ever fell, they were a little lower than the angels. And by that he means that uh, we had different lanes to be in, but the angels are greater in power. The angels are greater in splendor. The angels are greater in perfection. They're greater than us. We were created a little lower than the angels. Although he goes on to verse in the verse and says, but we're not without glory and honor. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. 
And you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that was not subject to him. Okay, so he's saying here, look, even though we're created a little lower than the angels, we're created with glory and honor. We have a very special place in the heart and the, and the intention and the design of God. And that's who we are. That's what he's done. He's, and he, and we're, he's left nothing, he said, that was not subjected to him. That is, when he were, whether we were in the Garden of Eden, everything on the planet was under the, the dominion and, the, and the, the authority of human beings. Everything. They were in charge. Nothing overruled them. Wow, that's a pretty good privilege, isn't it? Think about what God designed that privilege for us to be the representatives of God on earth, made in his image. What a precious thing that we should never take for granted. But something went terribly wrong with all that, with all that God had designed and what God had planned and the mission that God had given us and the image of God that, he, that we were made in, something went terribly, terribly wrong. And in one sentence only, at the end of verse 8, he describes that. He says, but now we do not see all things subjected to him. We've lost what we once had. We lost that dominion. We lost that control. We lost that mastery. We battle now in this life a world of sin. We battle everything. We battle all of creation. We try to dominate all the systems that we set up, all the technology, all the efforts that we make, all the policies that we pass, all the laws, all these things, we battle these things all the time, right? But the elements fight back. Just as Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator, so creation now rebels against us. Matter of fact, people are not only not mastering creation, we're very much in bondage to much of creation. We are at the whim of nature to a large degree, to disease, to the weather, to other creatures, to evil people, to societies, and much more. Even worse, when you drop down to the end of the chapter, just quickly, verse 14 and 15, we're in bondage to sin and death. Verse 14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He's talking about the bondage that we have to all of creation, ultimately to death. And as humanity passes through this life, growing older and sicker, eventually we face death, that mysterious thing that we don't understand. And then we go beyond this life to another life that we don't understand. But God says in chapter 9, verse 27 of this book, we face God and we face judgment at that point in time. That's not a very pretty picture. And so we battle. Even in the best of times, even with, our, with the good things going on, we fight against this life. Uh, one, I read a little story of a lady who... Um, was a realtor wanted her to buy a home, she said. I want you, here's a home for you. And the gal must have been in a bad mood, and she said this. Now, look, listen to this story. This is a person who has great privilege. She probably was in a bad mood. She shot back, a home? 
I was born in a hospital, educated in a boarding school, courted in a car, married in church, we eat at restaurants, spend our morning playing golf, spend our afternoons playing bridge, evenings at the movies, and when I die, I'm going to be buried from a funeral home. I don't need a home, I need a garage. Well, here's a person with everything in life they want, and yet they recognize that in some sense they are at the bondage, they're controlled by the very life they live. We call that the rat race sometimes. And so that is, even when it's at its best, we need to be set free from this bondage. And so our need, our great need, is to be set free from these things. When man chose to rebel against God, then he lost his destiny. He died spiritually. He began to die physically. He's lost his purpose and he's lost his freedom. That's a bad thing. All in the back end of verse 8. One line explains it all. But that takes us to something else, a little happier story. What, was, what can mankind be? Man's destiny is to be restored and upgraded by Christ. And verses 9 to 13 talk about that. We need, we're, we're in a hopeless situation. We're in an ugly mess. And then enters Jesus. Let's view this from the big picture of this. And as I say that, I think even Christians who have been set free from the bondage of life in many ways and the fear of, fear of death and the fear of, of, uh, of, of the power of sin, the fear of judgment, we've been set free from those things. Even, even we who are like that sometimes do not realize that we've been set free. You might remember back at the end of World War II when the different uh, army, uh, the allies were going through Germany and seeing these various concentration camps where there had been all these prisoners held there. They went to one in 1945, April the 1st. It, they went into one of these camps where there was 21,000 emancipated boys and girls. Mo- boys and men, I'm sorry, all men, all males. 21,000 of them dying of starvation. When the army went into those camps, that, that particular camp, the very first thing they said to them was, you're, you're free. You no longer need to be a prisoner. You've been set free. And not a one of those prisoners moved. They looked at them with big eyes, dying of starvation, and believed that, the, that this new army was as bad as the last army, and they were there to destroy and kill them. And they didn't move for over an hour. And then they brought in a Jewish rabbi, because most every one of these people were Jewish, a Jewish rabbi who was a chaplain who could speak Yiddish, and he began to tell them what had happened, and they were free. Still, it took not only hours, but months before some of those people recognized the message. They were so used to bondage, they couldn't believe they had been set free. And a human, a human being is so used to the bondage of sin, they can't believe they've been set free, and they often don't live out the freedom that Christ has given them. And that's what he wants to talk about right here. And so in review, God created man only a little less uh, uh, worthy of the, of the angels, a little below their honor. He, uh, he, man, though, has been frustrated by their sin. They're in a state of frustration and defeat. And then comes Jesus Christ. Let's look at the details. Let's begin to look at the details. In verse 9, here's a, here's a nice little couple words that you ought to notice right off the bat. After saying in verse 8, but now we do not see all things subjected to him. He says, but we, but we do see him. 
who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. But we do see him. I can't overemphasize how important those few words are. Don't look at humanity. Don't look at the mess that we're in. Don't look at the world around us that's so frustrating, even in our own lives. But we do see him, who was made a little lower than the angel. Do not focus on our mess. Focus on Jesus Christ. So he's shifting the focus here now from uh, the mess that we're in to the rescue that is found in Christ. And he starts off with the incarnation. We see him who is made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is the first of nine times the word for Jesus for, for the Lord Jesus is used. First time, first of nine times, always speaks of his humanity. And so we do see Jesus. Jesus came in the incarnation. He became like us. The message of Hebrews largely is this. Christ had to become a man to save us. The incarnation was absolutely essential. It was absolutely necessary. He came to, as in the incarnation, he came to reveal to us God so that we might know him and be his. Now, we have to be careful there because we tend to distort the image of the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 14 and 18 says, he's come to reveal to us God. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But he not only come to reveal to us God, our problem is we like to distort that image. John MacArthur, in one of his books, Ashamed of the Gospel, talked about a manufacturer who made Jesus action figures. So kids to play with. And another, another company that made Jesus rag dolls so that kids could hug them. And, and the mission statement with the Jesus rag doll was this was to help children discover Jesus because, quote, it's hard to hug air. You can't hug Jesus, you can't see Jesus, so you need a rag doll to hug him. Now, my friends, these are well-intentioned mistakes. We don't distort the image of the Lord to understand him. We need to stay with what the scriptures has revealed about God, about Christ, and that's found in the revealed word of God, primarily the gospels. Read the gospels. Read them often. Read them consistently. See what Jesus is really like. So we have to marvel at what he's done. Why did he create us? Why did he make us in his image? Why did he appoint us as his spokesmen, his ambassadors? Why did he come for us? But more importantly, why did he die for us? His incarnation was not enough. Something more was needed. He came, but something more was needed. The Greek mythologies of the time all had their gods, their mythological gods, showing up and interacting with people. Sometimes they, they married human beings. They, they ate with human beings. They partied. They, they went to war. They did all sorts of things. And these mythological gods were just part of the environment of that time. But none of the things these mythological gods ever did changed humanity. None of the things that they offered made any difference in the lives of people. They, they, didn't, they didn't care, and they didn't want to change us, and they couldn't change us. Something was needed more than what the gods could give. Something was needed more than the incarnation of Jesus. And that something in one word is the word substitution. He needed to die in our place. And that's what he's saying here. 
He tasted death, it says here. Go on down a little further. Because Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. He's tasted death for us. Let me give you a little warning, I think, here at this point. There's, since the pandemic and the wokeism and all that kind of stuff that came along, there a number of commentators, conservative people, uh, influencers, bloggers, and so forth have stepped to the plate, up to the plate and have offering some common sense ideas for humanity. Some of those we appreciate. I'll mention just one individual, for example, Jordan Peterson. A lot of you listen to his programs, his YouTube channels, his, his uh, blogs and so forth. And he says a lot of things that we say all the time. He's calling for morality. He, he believes in heaven and hell. He talks about God. He, he exegetes to some degree scripture. He calls for people to, to, to uh, have common sense and turn away from the stupidity of our world today. And we cheer him on. Go on, Jordan. Say more. And so we look to that kind of person, and we appreciate that kind of person. But here's the, here's the issue. Peterson misses something. In all of his common sense, in all of his talking to us about turning to morality, and all the things we ought to do to grow up, he never takes his audience to the cross. That is a big problem. Jesus did not come for to give us morality. We can become moral because we follow him and should. But he didn't come, in essence, to give us morality. He come to rescue us from ourselves and from our sins. As MacArthur says, the cross conquered the curse. When Jesus came, the most moral people on the planet probably were the Pharisees. None of the issues that we battle today on the moral plane were, were, were true of the Pharisees. They were highly moral people in almost every way, and yet Jesus condemned them over and over and over. Christ didn't come to make us moral. He came to change our lives and save us from our sins. And so while some of these bloggers have something to say, be very careful. They're not taking us to the cross, and therefore it's another dead end. So why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus have to die? That's a question that keeps coming up to people. Okay, I see the need for rescue. I know why we, needed to, why we need to be saved. But why the cross? Look at verse 10 as he goes on. He says this, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Jesus is, or the author of Hebrews is going to answer that question. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to go to the cross? Why was that necessary? Verse 10 tells us why. In a very complicated verse. If you are one of those that follow along with my manuscripts that I send out, and maybe some of you have them right in front of you right now, which makes me feel kind of creepy when you do. But if you have those manuscripts and you're following along... uh, You might want to put them away right now because this is so complicated, so intense that that what I wrote in the manuscripts I think is accurate but too hard to follow. And so I'm going to break it down in a simpler way this morning in this verse. There are three words that explain why Jesus had to come. Three simple words 
At least two of them probably ordinarily ignored. The first one, which is always ignored, is the word fitting. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, to bring many sons to glory. It was fitting for him to do this. What does he mean by that? We sang the old hymn today, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. We always sing this line concerning him dying for the double cure. Remember saying that a while ago, the double cure? If you ever said to yourself as you were saying those words, what in the world does he mean by that? He means this. The salvation process was not only about us, it was also about God. Something had to happen. Something had to take place. A methodology had to be devised in which we can be saved from our sin, and yet it's fitting for the nature and the perfection and the holiness of God. And so it was fitting for him, through whom are all things and through whom are all things, to bring many sons to glory. It was fitting. Have you ever tried to fix something, but you had the wrong tool? I do that all the time. I'm, I'm trying to, there's something I need to fix, but I don't have the right tool. I have almost the right tool. The right tool is probably in Ben's garage <laughs> or Brian's because it's, it, although they deny it very, very openly, my tools just disappear regularly and Marcia surely doesn't take them. So I'm, I'm guessing it's them. I don't want to be too accusatory, but I'm, I am. And so all the time I'm trying to fix something and I can't find my tools that I need or I break something. Like I broke my edger the other day and, and I broke a piece and nothing replaces the piece I fixed except buying another $100 piece, which I don't want to do. It almost fits, but it doesn't fit. There needed to be a plan that God devised that was not only capable of saving us, but was fitting for the very nature and the glory of God. That plan would be in the death of Jesus Christ. Here's the second word, perfect. It says, for it's fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Perfect. We look at that word, and we're talking about the Lord here. And by the way, if you look at verse 10, if you use the New American Standard 1995 like you should, uh, you'll notice that the word, the pronoun for him is capitalized. In the ESV, it isn't. In most other translations, it's not. The legacy, which you're going to buy after service today, is, uh, it does it, but uh, most don't. And that's one of the reasons why I still think these are the, uh, New American Standard is the very best translation. It will, trans- it will translate or, or capitalize those pronouns to help you. Because otherwise, your question, is he talking about people? Is he talking about Christ? Is he talking about God? And this capitalization is very, very helpful in your study of the Bible. For it's fitting for him. Who's him? God, the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect Christ. Okay? So but the question is this, and it, surely it comes to your mind. Why did Jesus need to be perfected? Isn't he holy? Isn't he perfect? In what sense can he be upgraded? <laughs> In what sense does he need to improve or be better? None. 
So he can't be talking about the Lord getting better or being more perfect. He never sinned. He never made a mistake. He's always perfect. So what is he saying here? Well, the word itself for perfect or perfect is teleos in the Greek. And it means something that is the absolute perfect item for the, for the occasion. It was used in the Old Testament of, of sacrificial animals that were unblemished. That was the word unblemished. There was no defect in those animals. Therefore, they were capable of being used for sacrifice. It's a, it's a word that speaks then of something that is absolutely and totally adequate, perfect for the occasion, for what is needed. And then it goes on to say that he was perfected through sufferings. So what is he saying? He's saying that although God is perfect and Jesus Christ is perfect, he is saying that he needed to go through the same sufferings, the same pains, the same temptations, the same heartaches that you and I do in order that he can be the perfect high priest for us that he talks about verses 17 and 18. He's building an argument. If we had a high priest who couldn't understand us at all, had no concept about the human nature, no concept about our battle with sin, and no concept about heartache and suffering and pain, never experienced it, then we would not have confidence in our great high priest who has gone through the things we've gone through, yet without sin. And so he was perfected in that sense, so that he would be the perfect sacrifice for us. Now there's one more word, and I love this word. It's the word author. author. It's found at the end of the verse. The author and, and the, of their salvation through suffering. This word is found four times in the New Testament. Always about Jesus. It's found in Acts chapter 3 verse 15. Acts chapter 5 verse 31. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 at the end of the book. And right here. It can be translated a number of ways. So if you pick up different translations or even, even staying with this one here, you'll find that in different places sometimes it's translated differently. It's a word that can be translated prince, although that, I don't think that's the best. It can be translated initiator or pioneer or leader or author or trailblazer. And I love the descriptive picture of a trailblazer. I think it fits very well with what he's saying here. Jesus had to come, Jesus had to die in our place to blaze the trail to God. No man comes through the Father but through Jesus, according to John chapter 14. He's the bridge to God. He's the one that blazed the trail to God. You've all seen movies where somebody's going through the jungles of Africa or South America, the Amazon jungles, and it's, it's a Western person who has hired native people to hack a trail through the jungle for them with machetes. That's the word here. Someone who has hacked the trail, who has blazed the trail. When in the early 1900s, when uh, Lewis and Clark were sent out by Thomas Jefferson to, to go out west and to blaze a trail to the, east, to the west coast, uh, they, they did so. They mapped out a trail. They're looking for a water route all the way to the coast. Never found that. But they did blaze a trail. Hundreds within that century followed them, and ultimately millions followed them. The trail was blazed by them originally, and people like them. Jesus is our trailblazer. 
He's cut the path through all this mess we're in, all this sin, all this heartache, all these failures. He has taken us from where we are to the, to the throne room of God through his shed blood for us. He's our, the author of our salvation, the trailblazer of our salvation. We needed someone to die in our place, and Christ has done that. So then, what the author is saying is this. Through suffering, Jesus was made fully fit for the task of being the pioneer of our salvation. It was his death and suffering which made him able to blaze the trail to salvation for others. Christ has done that so that we can follow him without fear into the next life. D.L. Moody, by the way, was a, was a chaplain in the Civil War. Most of you have heard of Moody, great evangelist of the 19th century. He uh, was a chaplain during the Civil War, and he tells a story, a very heartbreaking story, of a young man who was mortally wounded. And he was trying to help this man as he was dying, and the man said, I have not lived a life I should live. He asked for one thing for Moody, help me die. Help me die. I'm going to another life, and I need help to die. Jesus Christ made the provision that when we come to the end of this life, he can take us straight to the throne room of God if we receive his, his great gift of salvation by faith alone. Now that's a hard part. You can rest a little bit. I'm about done. But in verses 11 to 13, he brings up a kind of a corollary subject and an issue I had never personally contemplated until this, last, this round of study in this passage. As I was reading this on my own over and over, the, there's something showed up here that I'd never really identified. I, I knew it, but it became real to me. I hope it becomes real to you in the next couple of minutes. Verse 11 says this, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all, one from, are all from one Father. For this reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I want you to notice the terms brothers and brethren and children. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, verse 17... Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Something became very crystal clear to me as I was reading this. Our original design on earth was to be rulers. Rulers over this planet in the, in, as representatives of God. We failed. And so now we're being re- restored by the ministry of Jesus Christ for those that come to him. And we're not being restored just to rulers, which I do think will be a part of in in the kingdom age ahead, but we're also being elevated to the family. We're going from rulers to kin. We're going from, from people that rule on a political basis, so to speak, social basis, to being in the family of God. This is an amazing thing. MacArthur says of that verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He says this, how humbling to have the Son of God call us brothers and not be ashamed of it. 
The family is the greatest institution that the Lord has made on earth for us at this time. Their their love should be. There we should be able to be ourselves. And there we should be able to raise our children in the nurturing and the admonition that God gives us. There we should be able to love our wives as Christ loves the church. and, And the wives cling to that love of the husband so that they have a oneness and a bond and a love that takes them throughout the, the life together. That's the way it was meant to be. Something in our hearts always longs to go home. And yet sadly, the home life, the family life of multitudes of people on this planet are anything but idyllic. Often it's very tragic. It falls very short of the idea. For many people, they're held bondage by their memories of the family that didn't go so well in their home life and so forth, sometimes tragically. But we need not, folks, be held captive to a bad home life, even if we had a bad home life. As Nancy Piercy said in her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, she said this, no matter how badly our earthly fathers missed the mark, we are not forever handicapped by that history. Why? Because we have another father, a better father, a perfect father, one who never fails. And we've been brought into his family. That verse 11 to me is staggering. I don't think I've ever sat down and contemplated that verse like I have now. I want you to contemplate it with me for a moment and think about it today and this week. For this reason, because of what Christ has done for those who are his children, for this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Is that astounding or what? That the God of the universe, the Savior of humanity, the Lord of all, is not ashamed to call me his brother. That draws my heart to him. That makes me want to fall before him and worship him in ways I've never done before. He wants to be calling us his brothers. What a blessing. Father, we thank you that because of the work of Christ... Uh, we can be in your family. We can call, be called brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we can know the love of, of a father that is perfect. There's nothing like the love that is around us. Lord, we're so grateful. We've looked at an, an intense passage of Scripture. And I hope we've come away with the, the essence of the passage to understand what you did and why you did it and what you have planned for us. And we close by giving you total worship that you have done all of this so that you would not be ashamed to call us brothers. How blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.